Hey everybody, Father Tony here, and uh, we're talking with uh, Khalil Andani, I'm sorry, uh, who, who is a PhD candidate from Harvard University, and he is studying esoteric Islam, mysticism, and other interesting things. He's here to talk to us about Ismaili uh, Islam and how it relates to um, how we understand Gnosticism and all that stuff, and to help me do that, Jonathan Stewart is here as usual. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. Hello, Khalil. Hello. So uh, we had an interesting conversation in the beginning of the, the video part. We talked a little bit about what Ismaili Islam is in general, and then we talked about some interesting esoteric stuff. So let's continue that. Um, when, uh, <coughs> when we talk about esoteric Islam um, and the Ismaili uh, branch uh, or the communities in general, the Imam plays a very important role. Uh, there is a, um, well, in this unbroken chain of imams, what's different from imam to imam? How does the spiritual practice change? Does the esoteric interpretation change? That's a, a very good question, and it's hard to answer generally because there have been to date, you know, 49 yeah. imams. <laughs> uh, one can't speak to, uh, to you know, his, the academic study yeah. of Ismaili history only started in 1930s. Mm. So we're learning more as we recover more texts. Mm. And many um, things we thought we knew are revised a few years later. But, you know. Much like Gnosticism. Right, yeah, <laughs> uh, fair enough, you know. Uh, so it's the Ismaili tradition is an esoteric tradition, both in, in sort of like the technical sense, but it's also esoteric in the academic sense that very few people uh, study this academically using proper methods. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to undertake an academic study of Ismaili history and intellectual history, uh, bringing to bear uh, the best methods of research, both textual methods as well as uh, you know what they call the study of religion mm -hmm. and intellectual history. So how, how do things change from imam to imam? Well, definitely there have been periods in the history of the Ismailis where the community as a whole has been persecuted. Mm -hmm. And during certain periods for about spans of one to two hundred years, even the Imams have to live incognito. Mm -hmm. So what usually happens is the Imam uh, in the past, in pre-modern times, the Imam taught the community through a network of teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, this used to be called the, the Ismaili summons, or just the summons, the summons of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Imam's teaching was being conveyed on an ongoing basis, but it was being conveyed through this network of teachers, through a teaching hierarchy, mm -hmm. and it was a hierarchy of initiation. So uh, one would initially have access to certain levels of knowledge, and then with more practices and with more commitment, uh, one got access to higher levels mm -hmm. of knowledge. What does happen once in a while is that due to uh, an imam coming out of concealment, there are changes. Mm. So in 909, the 11th Ismaili imam came out of concealment and he founded the Fatimid Empire, mm -hmm. the Fatimid Caliphate. Mm -hmm. And that led to some major changes in the, the uh, leadership of the community in terms of the, uh, the laws of the new state, because the imam was taking direct control of this new state. Mm -hmm. uh, and even for members of the, the Ismaili um, summons at that point, it was different adjusting to a hands-on imam, mm -hmm. as opposed to an incognito imam. Yeah. That's what, so that's a, one example. Another example, of course, is 
Um, and we're not sure exactly how it works. We don't have texts available, but some imams have come and made sort of theological interventions. Uh, so the, certain imams have encouraged, for example, the use of Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the 14th imam, it's reported, encouraged uh, his own teaching hierarchy to use Neoplatonic ideas, or he legitimated it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so that meant that uh, sort of unofficially, Neoplatonic Neo cosmology and metaphysics became the sort of most popular form of esoteric discourse for the Fatimid Empire. Mm. That's very interesting, an yeah. empire that is using uh, Neoplatonic thought, and that's because an imam mm. uh, endorsed it. Uh, today, uh, there have been major changes because in the uh, late 19th century and going through the 20th century, the last two imams have made contact with Ismaili communities around the world that were prior, previously isolated. Oh. So many Ismaili ritual practices were updated. Hmm. The imam prescribed new forms of prayer to unite all these different communities under one prayer form mm -hmm. uh, to solidify a sense of uh, pan-Ismaili identity. So mm -hmm. the uh, ritual changes are another thing that mm -hmm. may differ from imam to imam. I bet the internet has made that very easy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. As as all religion has changed in the <laughs> in the 21st century a little bit, I think. Well, some have referred to the uh, current Ismaili imam's domain as a uh, authority without territory. Mm. So one author from the uh, Institute of Ismaili Studies just wrote a book. Uh, his name is Dariush Pur, called "Authority Without Territory," and he sort of examined how does the imam's authority work in modern times? Mm -hmm. And how is the imam using an institutional network uh, to exercise his authority to improve the quality of life of not just the Ismailis, but all people? So mm -hmm. today, the current Aga Khan is the chairman of the Aga Khan Development Network, probably one of the world's largest uh, group of agencies that work in the third world, but in now many other places, in the realms of healthcare, education, culture, um, all these different sectors. So for example, they run se uh, several schools, a couple of universities, many hospitals, and this is all done under the Aga Khan Development Network, and this is a, an institutional framework by which the imam is accomplishing uh, the mission of, of social justice. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing this up because while the Ismaili tradition has always been very Gnostic, uh, in, our, in, in, in the view of the current imamate, uh, spirituality f uh, obligates one to engage the world. Mm -hmm. Spirituality is not something that is a retreat from the world. And this is something we haven't seen other imams do because you know, they didn't have the means. So that's a major uh, shift. Mm. We've had that conversation here on the show a bunch about Gnosticism in general and how you can really kind of shut yourself off and the world is bad and I don't want to have anything to do with it. But um, if, uh, you know, if we believe, as, as we do, that each person contains that spark of the divine, then uh, it, it's, almost, uh, it's almost a requirement that you have to do something to help, help your fellow people uh, make their lives a little bit better while we, uh <laughs> while we have the opportunity to do so. So yeah. It's yeah, ab absolutely. One of the key messages of the current Aga Khan that he repeats over and over, people have come and said, 
oh, uh, the work you do, this is philanthropy or it's entrepreneurship. He says, no, it's none of those things because in the uh, outlook of most Muslims, faith and everyday life are really part of the same thing, mm -hmm. right? So this secular religious binary actually is not accepted here. Mm -hmm. uh, at the individual level, that means one's, the ethics of one's faith must inform every decision, sure. whether it's business, whether it's socializing, whether you're at a party, uh, you would continue to practice the ethics of your spiritual tradition. Mm -hmm. yeah. Could we, um, uh, uh, we already touched on it, and we touched on it a bit in, in the uh, in the video portion, but, but some of the points of comparison between Neoplatonism and, and kind of Ismaili thought and cosmology, if you could kind of get into uh, some specifics there. And actually, um, with that question, uh, you left me some notes and brackets, which is, God, Word of God, Universal Intellect, Universal Soul, and Cosmos. So I was wondering if you could talk uh, about some of these concepts and their connections to Neoplatonic thought. Yeah, I just watched a video today um, uh, that you did back in uh, 2013 where you, mm -hmm. you talked about this. Yes, uh, you know, when I read the um, statements on your guys' website, uh, there's remarkable resonance. So I'll, I'll sort of begin the way uh, your website begins. Sure. So firstly, um, Neoplatonism really becomes prominent in Ismaili discourses in the early to mid 10th century. It may have been there before that, but it's hard to, to track that. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, before Neoplatonism became like, you know, the, the trade of Ismaili thought, they had a system of, of uh, metaphysics that properly is called Gnostic. Mm. Uh, but one theme of both systems is this notion that God is absolutely one, absolutely transcendent. So tr God transcends all attributes, mm -hmm. all names. Even if scripture names God through 99 names or uh, 300 names, uh, God in his reality is above those names. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, unknowable. Mm -hmm. So this is apophatic theology. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not just a negative theology. So for example, it's not enough to say God is not knowing and not living and not powerful and not merciful, because that actually doesn't result in God. That results in some non-entity that yeah. has nothing. Mm -hmm. So Ismaili philosophers actually said that if you want to use human language to talk about God, we need to use double negation. Mm -hmm. So we would say God is not powerful and not not powerful. God oh. is not knowing and not not knowing. So that's sort of the first thing regarding God. Mm -hmm. um, in a, for those who are familiar with, with the Christian tradition, it is quite resonant with the concept of divine simplicity, mm -hmm. which is, of course, in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. I believe it's part of the catechism of, of the Catholic Church even to this day. Mm -hmm. So th all this apophatic... Um, negations results from divine simplicity because a, a being that has real attributes is not simple. Mm -hmm. It's composite. It has parts. And philosophically speaking, an entity that has parts is caused by the union of those parts. Mm -hmm. But then something caused cannot be God. Yeah. So that's how they, they justified this position. Then it goes further. Um, God is the continuous creator and sustainer of all existence. 
So we're not talking about a God who simply creates at the beginning of time at mm -hmm. some Big Bang and then sort of leaves it. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about God who himself transcends time and space. So therefore, everything that exists eternally depends on God. Uh, and where there's a difference from standard Neoplatonism is that the method of or the means of divine creation is not emanation. It is rather an act of will or command. Mm. So to put it symbolically, this unknowable God, for reasons we will never fathom, but this Godhead, this transcendent Godhead, symbolically says, be, utters this command. We don't know why this command is here, but it, mm -hmm. it is what it is. We know that there is a command because things exist. Mm -hmm. That's at least the perspective that the Ismailis would take. And from the command of God, this, which is an eternal command, it is a continuous command, uh, reality will unfold, but it will unfold hierarchically. Mm -hmm. So the direct result of God's command will not be this imperfect limited universe. It will only be by logic one entity. Mm -hmm. If multiple entities came from God's act, it would imply some multiplicity in God. So only one entity comes forth. That one entity, if it was imperfect, there would be some imperfection in God. Mm -hmm. So the one entity that comes forth first must be perfect. Mm -hmm. And the Ismailis identified the first created being, the first perfect being with the universal intellect, mm -hmm. the noose yeah. of Plotinus. And this perfect being, the universal intellect, uh, contains the forms of all things. To put it in today's vernacular, it contains eternal universal truths, mm -hmm. things like mathematic truths. Some would say the truths of the laws of logic, any sort of proposition that we know has to be true all the time. Some would even say certain moral laws mm -hmm. are contained in the universal intellect. So that's the first being, and this first being is perfect. Um, it, by its very nature, it recognizes God. Mm -hmm. uh, it says symbolically, there is no God but God. So that's the intellect's testimony. Uh, in, in Muslim terms, that's the shahada. Mm -hmm. You know, the Muslim declaration of faith <laughs> is there is no God but God. What yep. the Ismailis do is they say the first being to say that is the universal intellect. Because the universal intellect is perfect, it overflows with being. And the, this, uh, that is emanation. Mm. And from the emanation of the universal intellect, the universal soul comes forth. Mm -hmm. And this universal soul is almost perfect. It can't, if it's not exactly perfect, or else it would be the, the intellect. So it's right. almost perfect. Mm -hmm. And this universal soul, of course, it desires perfection, as every being does. And in order to actualize perfection, because it's come from perfection, mm -hmm. so it, therefore it has the potential to reach perfection. To actualize the perfection, the universal soul will contemplate, it contemplates the intellect, and it gives form to that contemplation, its attempt to, to make itself perfect, mm -hmm. and that is the act of generation of the cosmos. Mm. Right. So that sort of completes your model. And in the cosmos that we see, we see this universe, according to this, to this way of looking of, at things, which I think even in modern terms could be intellectually um, revived. Mm -hmm. One would say that the intelligibility of the universe as humans experience it, that the ground of that intelligibility is the universal intellect. 
mm-hmm. that contains the essences. But we don't just see intelligibility in the universe. We see movement. We see continuous change, but we see goal-directed activity. Mm-hmm. For example, um, many would say uh, in this tradition and today, the laws of nature, the, the regularities by which nature behaves, that is goal-directed activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the universal soul is the exemplar, the, the ground of that goal-directed activity. So this sort of gives you this sort of complete uh, Neoplatonic uh, yeah. worldview, which I think has a lot in common with Right, yeah. I, uh, it's very interesting to see these various, these traditions that have kind of the emanationist cosmologies and where they put that split, right? Because that seems to be where the differences are between them. You know, so yeah. you're the, the split, in, if I understand this uh, correctly, is kind of right at the top. And then in Gnosticism, it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Neoplatonism, there's not really a split, but it's kind of, you know, water flowing downhill kind of a thing. So, yeah, it's... Uh, all, all interesting interpretations of the same problem. Yeah, and and even same this problem. this yeah. uh, this notion of the divine spark. I mm-hmm. mean, in this I, in this worldview, uh, human souls are uh, microcosms of the universal soul, mm-hmm. and every human soul has a, a, this spark, mm-hmm. which is the the the, f- the spark is from the intellect. That's interesting. Is there a uh, so is it a twofold division of of man in in this system? Is it body and soul, or is there a, another part to it? Or um, it's for, it depends who you you read, <laughs> sure. of course. Yeah. But uh, a prevalent view in the classical Ismaili tradition, of course, everything I've just said. It, this is the classical Ismaili yeah. thinkers, and it gets elaborated further. Sure. Um, but it's really intellect, soul body okay mm-hmm. and even within the human the human soul itself consists of at least a rational soul which is the discursive faculty mm-hmm. so intellect higher than that mm-hmm. so the human soul has rational soul animal soul and uh, vegetative soul responsible for rationality uh, the animal soul is sorry uh, discursive Rational soul is for rationality. Animal soul is for fear and anger, and the ve- the vegetative soul is for growth, attraction hmm. to pleasure, these sorts of things. I'm fascinated by that stuff. <laughs> it's very uh, and it sounds it sounds very familiar, and it's very similar to lots of stuff in our tradition. Yeah. Talking talking about sort of a point that Father Tony mentioned. Where where do things kind of go wrong in this in this thought? Like why sort of a narcissism there there is there is a break um, uh, at some point during these emanations or in some forms of Gnosticism. Again, Gnosticism is sort of a, a family of traditions, even classic Gnosticism. So you talk about the universal soul sort of uh, overflows and then the the cosmos is created. Um, but what? Where where is there why why do bad things happen on Earth? Is it is it left as a divine mystery, or the, is it something to do with this process, or what is kind of the Ismaili thought on this when connecting it to the the cosmology? So uh, this is a very a very very good question. Um, so there's really two two things to say about it. So there is no real break here. Uh, there's no sort of disaster in the mm. pleroma. There are other Ismaili cosmologists of the uh, another Ismaili tradition, uh, which is worth describing. And they have this idea of, uh, of 10 intellects, mm-hmm. no universal soul. Mm-hmm. It's God, command of God, 10 intellects. And 
how do they explain the ten intellects? They say that there was a first intellect, that, gave, that emanated a second, and that emanated a third. And each of these intellects recognized the authority of the one above them mm -hmm. and testified to God. So that was all good. In, in this system, the third intellect fails to recognize properly the authority of the two above him, mm -hmm. and the third intellect goes into a stupor, sort of like a, a point of confusion, and it finally comes out of the stupor, and it finds that it's dropped from third to tenth. <laughs> and that it's this tenth intellect now wants to go back to the third level where it belongs. How does it do that? It needs help. So it creates souls. It sort of manifests, it fragments into different, hum different souls and a cosmos mm. through which these souls will purify themselves. They'll become perfect. And through the effort of these different souls, tenth intellect will jump up to the ninth. And then the guy, you know, one human being, sort of like the Matrix, yeah. one human being, the last Imam, will become the tenth intellect, and then he'll create again. Oh. You know, wow. and this will repeat itself seven times until number th uh, the tenth, the, the tenth has returned back to the third. That's more uh, sort of along the lines of these Gnostic cosmologies yeah. that we're familiar with. Yeah. But the, the, the one that I was describing, which was um, more mainstream, uh, you, the universal, the imperfection begins at the level of the universal soul. Mm -hmm. It's because it's not the intellect. Mm -hmm. And the universal soul it creates a cosmos that is on the road to perfection, but obviously suffers from imperfections, mm -hmm. right? Because the universal soul has both, it has potential perfection, but it has actual imperfection. Mm -hmm. So its creative product will have some perfect beings mm -hmm. and a lot of imperfect beings. So in Ismaili sort of cosmology, the perfect souls that the universal soul creates are the souls of the prophets and the imams. Mm. But mm. the rest of the souls could be perfect, they just need the guidance of the perfect souls. Mm. And um, so then, you know, this relates to why do, why do bad things happen? Uh, ultimately, anything that is not the universal intellect will suffer from privation, just by, just by being what it is. Yeah. Uh, if yep. everything was totally perfect uh, and and without any privation, there would be no. There, it wouldn't be the cosmos. Yeah. Right. It Nothing would be. Would it would be it something would just, else. Yeah. It sounds a lot like uh, Jacob Boma. It's uh, very. That sounds very similar to me. That his uh, his his explanation of how um, creation is complete but imperfect on its way to becoming complete and perfect. Yeah. 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 So, uh, these ideas don't exist in a vacuum, I suppose. <laughs> no, I, w what's amazing uh, in my own studies has been to see, uh, and I've studied some Catholic thought and some Christian mysticism, Meister Eckhart. Mm -hmm. So I have an article, if you maybe you'll be interested, uh, published in Sacred Web. Mm -hmm. Sacred Web is this uh, journal of esoteric thought uh, comparing Meister Eckhart's mystical interpretation of the Trinity Mm -hmm. to Ismaili Neoplatonism. Oh, very mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, it's a two-part article, um, and you'll see a lot of sort of synergy uh, between, of course, they're not the same, sure. uh, but you'll see a lot of, you know, crossovers mm -hmm. uh, in conception. So it's amazing, as, as a student, someone who studies this academically, the, the sort of commonalities that you find, and actually it shouldn't surprise us. Today, as modern people, we divide uh, people based on religion, and then we divide religions yeah. based on <laughs> civilizations. Mm -hmm. we, we treat Islam and Christianity 
and Hinduism, even though Hinduism is a construct, as separate worlds. Mm. But as you guys all know, um, for a lot of the medieval period, from really the, as soon as Islam comes on the scene, Muslims, Christians, Jews, even um, uh, what are today called Hindus, Zoroastrians, they are all working out of a common pool of cultural, intellectual concepts and vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So Thomas Aquinas is reading Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina, mm -hmm. except through Latin translation. <laughs> so he mixes up a little bit of what they say. Uh, Moses uh, Maimonides, the, probably the most famous Jewish theologian, he lives under the domain of the Ismaili Fatimid Empire. Mm -hmm. And Moses Maimonides adopts a lot of Ismaili positions and critiques some of them, but mm -hmm. he, some of them he loves. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he flourished in that environment and in Andalusia uh, in the you know, 12th, 13th century. You have you know this civilization of Jews, Christians, Muslims. They're all working together. Mm -hmm. So this is this division between Christendom and Muslim civilization. It's artificial. Mm -hmm. It's at least it's not as separate as we think they are today. We all come from a shared heritage, and if one wants to deny the cultural heritage, I would propose that we have a common ethical heritage mm -hmm. behind these different uh, faith traditions. And Gnosis, I think, is of all these different traditions, th the Gnosis is this you know, paramount expression of that common ground and at least common aspirations. Mm. Makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in, uh, I think a lot of Christians and secular people in the West are surprised that in all of Islam, uh, Jesus is a prophet. Uh, you know, he plays an important role. He's in the Quran. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Jesus' role in the faith, and if, if in Ismaili thought, does he have two natures, one human and one divine? Yes, uh, it's a very good question. So let me just begin in general. I'm not sure if you guys have read the Quranic verses on Jesus and Mary. But uh, I have. Okay, so you have. So, you know, Mary is mentioned more in the Quran than mm. she is in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And Jesus in the Quran is presented as a Israelite prophet. You could say uh, that the Quran returns Jesus to his Jewish context, sort of as a, it's making a counter-commentary to the more Romanized mm -hmm. Jesus, for better or for worse. So uh, we need to remember that the Quran, every verse of the Quran is addressing in its literal meaning the audience of 7th century Arabia. Right. So, because those are the people who the Prophet Muhammad was talking with. Mm -hmm. So the Quran is speaking a lot to beliefs about Jesus prevalent in 7th century Arabia that do not necessarily uh, reflect Orthodox, Catholic, and, and Gnostic Christianity. Mm -hmm. So the Quranic criticism of Christian belief seems to me, anyway, a criticism of what even today's Christians would call heresy. Mm -hmm. So the Quran criticizes those who say God is Jesus, it's like you know this monophysite mm -hmm. view, mm -hmm. right? It criticizes the adoptionists. Uh, it criticizes those who say God God is third of three, 
a trinity that has Jesus, God, and Mary, mm. because there are Arabian tribes that believe that. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think the Quran's Christology is a direct um, confrontation with the Christology of, of mainstream and Gnostic Christianity. I, for one, don't think that. Mm -hmm. But Jesus in the Quran is called a prophet of God, a messenger of God. He's also called the Word of God, mm -hmm. and he's called a spirit of God. And he's also referred to as being guided or supported by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. so that's the raw material. Now let's sort of move to the Ismaili discourses on Jesus. So Ismailis believe, um, at least the, the classical thinkers, but mind you, among the Ismaili community today, people have all kinds of different views. So when I refer to the Ismailis, I'm really t talking about, you know, sort of established Ismaili theologians from history. I don't mean to sort of represent, sure. you know, the views of a very diverse community today. Mm -hmm. So these Ismaili perspectives on Jesus, firstly, they view Jesus as one of the most important prophets since Adam and Eve. Uh, it is believed that there have been many prophets, but there are six prophets that are preeminent. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Mm -hmm. uh, and together with the whole line of imams, you have seven. Mm -hmm. Sort of like in Ebionite Christianity, the seven pillars of the house of wisdom. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is number five. Mm -hmm. And the Ismailis understood every prophet and his mission to be akin to a stage of fetal development. Mm -hmm. So you know, the Quran describes the development of a embryo to a child in uh, seven stages. Mm -hmm. It says first it's a drop, and then it becomes um, bones, and then flesh. And th there's a whole seven-step process, and mm -hmm. Ismailis read that verse, and they said, this is not talking about the physical embryo, really. It's mm -hmm. talking about the world of faith, mm -hmm. that God, through sending these prophets, is giving, is uh, engendering, or rather, to be precise, the universal soul is giving birth to the, perf the perfect humanity through sending these prophets. Mm -hmm. So Jesus already plays an important role in that. Each prophet, each of these great prophets, and then the, the imams after, they are seen as the human beings who reflect the universal intellect. So this is not incarnation. Mm -hmm. It is what you would call um, manifestation. Mm -hmm. So that is to say that, firstly, the universal intellect is not a person. Right. right? It's not, it doesn't have like, you know, like intentions and wants and all this. So it's not a person. It is a reality. Mm -hmm. But the prophets are persons, and the imam is a person. But they are not just ordinary persons. Their persons are so pure that they are able to reflect as far as any human can, the qualities of the universal intellect. So Jesus is seen as this. Mm -hmm. uh, does that mean he has two natures? That some Ismaili thinkers have described Jesus and each of these prophets and imams as having two natures. Mm. A human nature, which refers to their human soul. Right? You know, the, when we talk about a person, we're really talking about a soul, we're mm. not really talking about a body. Mm -hmm. So the I-ness of every person is his soul. So every imam and every prophet has that I-ness. Sure. So Jesus has that too. So that's his human nature. And then that human nature at all times is 
uh, containing or is a reflection of the universal intellect, which you could call a divine nature, but mm -hmm. the term divine doesn't need to be used. You could call it a celestial nature. So those are the two natures of Jesus. But then in this, of course, Jesus is not unique. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is. Jesus is a, a bringer of light. He is a teacher of truth. Jesus guides you know, his disciples and those who believe in him back to the universal intellect. And uh, I just add that Ismailis in the past recognized these other faith traditions as legitimate paths to, to attaining spiritual perfection. Mm -hmm. Even today, the Ismaili Imam, the Aga Khan, preaches pluralism. He says that uh, nobody has the monopoly over truth that we all have something to learn from one another because you know no no nation no religion no ideology can claim to possess exclusive truth you know where everyone else is condemned pluralism means we all have something to contribute we mm -hmm. all have something to learn from each other and that there are multiple paths to god that doesn't mean they're all equally legitimate People can debate sure. which is better, mm -hmm. but just to to say that one path is better than the other does not mean the other is is condemned. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that's uh, yeah. I, I think I, most Gnostics would uh, would recognize that. I think so. Yeah. The um, uh, Jonathan, do you want to throw anything else in here before we throw it to some audience questions? I think I think we're uh, I, I think I'm good and and I know we are running out of time so we may want to get to these. Yeah. Um, I did actually have one more just before we uh, okay. before we slide into that. Uh, you mentioned in the uh, I think in the video portion the, the the imams are kind of the the people with the gnosis, right? When do they get that? Gnosis. I mean, maybe that's a weird question. <laughs> but it's a very good question. <laughs> Do they get it's it when they become the imam, or is it something that you have to have in order to become the imam? So this has been, of course, a uh, subject that different Muslim thinkers have, have discussed mm -hmm. in different Shia traditions. Uh, the Ismaili tradition, you do actually have a consistent answer in the sense that one of the past imam answered the question straight up. So the 23rd imam of the Ismailis, uh, his name is Imam Hassan, he said, and this is documented in the, uh, a publication by the Institute of Ismaili Studies called The Paradise of Submission. So people can check that out. And the 23rd imam says that the imam is always spiritually perfect even when he's born. Mm. Uh, so the imam is born with this light, with gnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, but that imam will only f start functioning as the imam when the preceding imam has died. Mm. Right? Yeah. So, so that, that's been sort of the clear answer. Now, contemporary perspective, people can still sort of debate this question, um, people in the Ismaili community may, may talk about it. It's less important today because you, nobody can really follow someone as an imam until uh, the current imam designates him. Right. And it's become the policy, it seems anyway, of the, the contemporary imams where they name their successor in their will. Mm. 
and the will is read out, at least in the, the case of the, la the 48th Imam, when he passed away, his will was read out like after he died. Mm -hmm. So there was, even during his lifetime, nobody knew uh, who the next Imam was. Mm. And uh, the Imams are infallible in the Ismaili tradition? Um, so I, the word infallible, of course, is, is, is a borrowed from the Catholic yeah, tradition. Yeah. But what you do find in uh, historical Ismaili discourses is that the Imams and the Prophets, so Sunni Muslims believe that this is true for the Prophet Muhammad, and all Shia Muslims believe that the Imams are protected from committing errors and sins, mm. protected by God. I don't know if infallible is the best translation of that. Right. It may not be. Uh, because of that, uh, Shia Muslims in general believe that the Imam is always giving correct guidance. So the Imam definitely cannot, you know, go astray in terms of his spiritual guide. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the Imam. He would just be like a, a scholar or anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so definitely, um, the guidance of the Imam is always true. That is really the basis of, of why he, he is an Imam. Mm. But could the Imam be wrong about, say, being a Cubs fan or something? <laughs> <laughs> something not spiritual. Yeah. You know, th this is something that's debated yeah. to this day. Uh, I can't, you know, I mean, in the, the certain past discourses, so discourses from the 13th century, philo some philosophers have written that the Imam, you know, cannot be wrong on anything. Mm. But, you know, these are all, w when we talk about infallibility or what have you, we have to recognize that, you know, all theology are really attempts of believers to understand their experience mm -hmm. of the faith. And, and it's a very positive thing, but usually um, theology is not at the same level as the imam's teaching. Mm -hmm. So when an imam has said something that it's authoritative, then one can do all the theological speculation that they want. It, it can be fruitful, right? But it does, just because a theologian has said something, it doesn't mean that that is the imam's own sort of um, position sure. on mm -hmm. things. So in all of this, the imam is like the chief, you know, the, the, he's, he's the sole interpreter to determine uh, what Islam should be mm -hmm. for his community. And then within that umbrella of the imam's guidance, members of the Ismaili community will engage in philosophical and theological exploration, mm -hmm. in giving their best efforts. And that's where all these cosmologies yeah. um, are, are coming from. But we should not sort of put them at the same level as the imam's teaching, which is sort of, it's sort of meta. It's meta-theology, right. meta-theological. Yeah. All right, got it, mm -hmm. thank you. All right, so uh, we, asked, uh, we asked the uh, fans on our Facebook page for some questions. Um, Let's see. Okay, so uh, Kaleem Kassan asks, the Ismailis are often thought of as being an antinomian sect. To support this view are the dictum attributed to Hassan bin Sabah, nothing is true, everything is permitted. Not a question exactly, but I guess he wants to get your opinion <laughs> on, on what the, on that. <laughs> so Hassani Sabah was a uh, Ismaili philosopher part of the Ismaili mission at the end of the 11th century, and he became a major leader of the of, of Ismaili communities in Persia. Um, there are a lot of legends about him <laughs> that are not true. Um, the term assassin 
coming from the word hashashin, mm -hmm. I hash people who do hash, mm -hmm. was applied to Hassan Isaba and his community of Ismailis. It's completely wrong. Mm. These Ismailis never did hash. As for assassination, we have to understand that in uh, the Ismailis in the end of the 11th century and through the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, because the, the Ismaili Imams were ruling as Fatimid Caliphs, the Sunni Abbasid Caliphs uh, saw the Ismailis as almost public enemy number one, mm. you know, as a political disturbance. Mm. And uh, there was a purge in the early 12th century the whole Abbasid Seljuk administration went through some sort of an inquisition where they tried to find out which of their officers are Ismailis and tens of thousands of people were executed mm. um, on suspicion of being Ismaili. And Ismaili communities at this time and even before were being slaughtered. I mean, mm. genocide had, uh, has occurred in the past. Now, how does a community protect itself against a genocidal act that a military general or a vizier or a caliph can bring ag against you any time. Mm -hmm. So at that time, the assassination of political and military leaders was common warfare. The Abbasids did it, the Saljuks did it, different parties in a court would, would do assassinations. So the Ismailis of that you know, late 11th and 12th century to protect their community from being targeted by these generals and officers and viziers would, would um, also, uh, you know, order assassinations. That was the only way to protect a vulnerable minority whose fortresses are sort of surrounded uh, by hostile forces. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's unfortunate that the term assassin has been so turned around. Now, go, Hassan, Hassan Isawa never said that quote, oh, okay. that nothing is permitted. Uh, this antinomianism is a trope. It, it's just something that people like to sort of say. It has no truth to it. The Ismailis have maintained the highest ethical standards f and self-discipline. Uh, in their community, and it continues till the present day. I think what happens generally, though, is uh, unfortunately, because Sunni Islam historically has been very law-centric, mm -hmm. Islamic law has been used as a yardstick to measure the Muslimness of other communities, including the Ismailis. And for the Ismailis, although they had uh, formal law during the time, and, and by law, I don't mean like simple rules of living, but I mean this, you know, this very detailed jurisprudence, mm -hmm. where there's every possible situation, there's a ruling. That's what I mean by Islamic law. So uh, Ismailis have had that at times, but at other times, uh, they have really de-emphasized the law. Mm. Of course, they've always maintained the ethical aspects of living. That has always been there. But formal jurisprudence mm -hmm. has often been de-emphasized because Ismailis historically did not define Islam as law. Mm. Uh, today, well, and they have the imam for that, right? Right. Yeah. So when you have a living imam who is providing guidance on moral issues, on religious rituals, law in and of itself is not really necessary. At least jurisprudence is not mm -hmm. necessary. They, jurisprudence was only necessary when they had the Fatimid Caliphate, and the Caliphate needs a law. So I, I'm saying this because, look, in the Quran, there's very little law. The Prophet Muhammad has very little legal teachings, actually. Mm -hmm. Islamic law is a construct by jurists 300, 400, 500 years 
after the prophet law is constructed. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to subject another, a non-Sunni minority community to the, the, the yardstick of, well, do they have law or not? If they don't have law, then they must not be legit. That, there's no need to, mm. uh, to do that. Very interesting. All right, uh, Ibrahim Alevi says, how does Ismailism uh, reconcile its monist view of God with God's utter transcendence? Well, we talked a little bit about that earlier, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alia? Hmm? Oh. oh yeah, I was just about to say, I want to move on to the next one yeah. since we tackled it. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to ask, well, uh, Aldeas <laughs> asked, uh, why did philosophy and science come to an end in the 12th century in the Muslim world? Which I don't know if that's an <laughs> accurate question, but, uh, and uh, how do Ismailis today reconcile science and religion? Oh, I mean, it's a good question. So the first question um, is something I often hear from people who follow uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> okay. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, I mean, yeah, you know, that's a bit of a leading question. Very, isn't it? Uh, yeah. very good at you know talking about science of today, but his knowledge of Muslim history and civilization is severely lacking. Mm -hmm. He yeah. actually said that you know science and philosophy came to an end in the 12th century. It's simply not true. Um, this is another one of those tropes uh, myth that that many sort of Orientalists scholars used to say. Why? Because Ghazali, a Sunni thinker, wrote a tract called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, <laughs> where he argued with the, f he, argue, he, he disputed out of like about 20 or so beliefs of Ibn Sina and other Neoplatonists. He only disputed three of them. Mm -hmm. He said the rest are fine. And he took, and the thing is, Ghazali uses philosophical methods of argument to argue with the philosophers. <laughs> and he's very philosophical. And a lot of Orientalists said, well, look, it's Ghazali's fault. But it's, uh, it's really not true. Philosophy has continued to be vibrant from the 12th century onward. Um, what has happened, though, is that the Muslim world, due to different factors like colonization, uh, you know, and, and British colonialism and all these developments, the Muslim world has not benefited from the, the technological revolution uh, that Western and European countries have benefited from. And, and really, the, uh, and, and there's many reasons for that. You know, the Middle East was divided after World War I by the Allied powers, mm -hmm. and, and new borders, arbitrary borders were drawn, and this has just created a lot of instability mm -hmm. um, uh, in, in some parts of the Muslim world. Uh, the, the, the second question was about science and religion. Yeah. So this is a, I think it's very relevant. And, and I'd like to hear a sort of Christian Gnostic approach sure. to this. Mm -hmm. So how do Ismailis sort of go about doing that? Well, I mean, individual Ismailis can go about it very different ways, but I can sort of reference what the Aga Khan himself has said about science and religion. Mm -hmm. So in the 1980s, um, this issue came up, and the Aga Khan, over several speeches, explained uh, that there is no conflict, and there could never be a conflict between science and religion. Why is that? Well, he said that in Muslim belief, God is eternal, and God's creative act, the act of creation, is eternal. Mm -hmm. So if God is creating all the time, it, it sort of, from a human perspective, God is creating all the time, right? And I explained that sort of hierarchy. Yeah. So in, in Neoplatonic terms, God, God by means of his command that manifests through the universal intellect and universal soul 
is always creating the cosmos. And therefore, every human act of discovery mm. is also an act of creation. Mm. Uh, to put it in different terms, when a in, in, in within this theological paradigm, when a human being, the human mind, the human intellect, which is created, uh, comes upon new knowledge, from a metaphysical perspective, God, through these intermediaries, is simultaneously creating that knowledge. Mm. So now, who should be taking credit <laughs> for the scientific discoveries? I mean, the, the, theolo the theologian would, would say, well, it's both man has discovered, man has simply discovered something new of God's creation, right? So mm -hmm. then there, there, there does not need to be a conflict. And also, what are the definitions of science and, and religion? I mean, science, I think, if you think about it, science is, ta is talking about describing uh, and modeling in a predictable way the behavior of things. Mm -hmm. I think that is, of course, le entirely legitimate. Uh, but metaphysics is involved in explaining the nature of things, mm -hmm. not just their behavior. So theology, metaphysics, and religion ultimately is people are, people are trying to find meaning through the nature of things. It's not just about studying the behavior so you can predict them. So, so science and religion are, you know, or metaphysics, they're, do, they're doing different things. And there doesn't, definitely does not need to be a conflict because one can't really replace the other. Sure. Yeah, um, <coughs> I'm of the opinion uh, that Neil deGrasse Tyson should probably stay in his lane <laughs> when it comes to, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, controversial, but uh, yeah. Uh, he, he's great on astrophysics, but uh, you know, let the philosophers do philosophy. And <laughs> um, yeah, there was a, a lot of a lot of uh, people in my Facebook feed were fairly upset with him when he made his statement about how you know philosophy is useless and everybody should stop doing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what so. Do you what are you gonna do? I, I think we're almost at time, right, Father? Uh, just about. I haven't really yeah. been keeping track. Okay. Yeah, I would. I would like to go all night, uh, Kalona. I also want to thank you because, um, to, to be honest, uh, when we do this show, sometimes, oftentimes, we have guests on and we're exploring topics we're quite familiar with, and maybe we want to get information out there or discourse on a topic that we know well. And I, I can't speak for Father Tony, but what I know about Islam and his smiley. Islam could fill about a thimble, mm. so uh, or did before the show. So uh, I, I personally uh, learned quite a bit, and, and everything you said is, is quite interesting um, and fascinating. And, and the fact that this is a, a living tradition, you know, because I'm used to a lot of coming across thought like this in, in dusty old books. Well, my e-reader. Um, <laughs> but I did want to ask her close out to, to talk a little bit about. Uh, kind of getting off topic a little bit, but uh, of course it's it's election year in in the United States, and there's been a lot of rhetoric about Islam and about Muslims. Uh, and as and I, I want to ask, you know, about is 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 Islam inherently a uh, a violent religion? Is it a religion of peace? And uh, and I have heard that uh, many victims of terrorism around the world are are actually Muslims, and in many cases, Shia is Smiley. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. No, I, absolutely. I mean, it's a very timely question. Um, so I'll, you know, we can close with this. So, firstly, you know, uh, 
the, a believer could say his religion is about peace or war or whatever it is. Um, I think that the academic study of religion gives us a better way to approach this question. Religions, whether it's Christianity, Islam, religions are not these entities that exist sort of in the air, independent of people. Right. That's the first thing. So religion, whether Islam or Christianity, is neither peaceful nor violent. It doesn't exist apart from people. Religion really is what people do, what people believe, how, you know, what people aspire to. So let's just make that qualifier first. Sure. So if we want to talk about Islam, I think we should really be talking about uh, what Muslims think and believe. Okay, now, why did this question come up? And, and there, there's, you know, why do people, why are people asking this question, is Islam violent? Uh, yeah. Either they mean Muslims are violent, or they think Islam is this entity that exists independent of Muslims, and basically, uh, because they've read certain portions of the Quran that they think are violent, they think, well, this Islam is simply what the Quran says, therefore it must be violent. That's usually mm -hmm. the argument. So I want to sort of shut this thing down once and for all. So the first thing, um, what do we know about Muslims? Well, we know there's probably more than 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. Now, uh, some studies have been done on the media and I, I forget the exact source, but Sh uh, Professor Shafiq Virani of University of Toronto has a TED talk about this, and he cites a study that found that uh, 95, over 95 percent of media stories about Muslims cast them in a negative light. Really? 95 percent. 95 percent. Now here's the thing. There's 1.5 billion Muslims. At mm -hmm. most, at most, only 100,000 of them are these militant groups. Mm -hmm. That is less than point zero one percent, probably less than point zero zero one percent. So this tiny little speck of this huge circle, so the, most of these one, like, you know, 99.9% of 1.5 billion Muslims around the world are peaceful, they're not violent, and they're simply wanting to live a quality of life like the rest of us. That's it. So that's the first point. The second point is, as you already mentioned, the biggest victims of militant groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, the, the biggest victims of them are Muslims. Mm -hmm. Muslims hate these groups. You know, it, it's like saying, uh, to use another example, a group of people is, is being murdered and uh, people then say to the victims, you guys support murder. <laughs> it makes no sense, right? It's nonsense. Uh, the third point, if we compare the attitudes of American Muslims, uh, what do we find about them? American Muslims are very much like other Americans. And I'll just cite uh, the results of um, a, a, a poll, for example, uh, about American Muslims. So, for example, they found that the, I think the same amount, around 40%, of American Muslims take their faith seriously. That's the same uh, percentage, I think, for, uh, for as Catholics and Protestants, sure. mm -hmm. right? Yep. So how, how different are American Muslims than, than other Americans? They're, they're very, very similar. Uh, in fact, uh, Gallup polls around Muslims worldwide found that in general, Muslims, both in America and in other countries, are more likely to condemn military acts against civilians. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, less numbers of Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and Mormons, and atheists 
uh, less numbers, less percentages of them per polls would condemn military action against civilians. <laughs> and that's just to put the numbers in context. So clearly the problem is not Muslims. Muslims are not violent. So the, the last thing people usually say is, okay, well, the Muslims may not be violent, but, but the Quran is violent. <laughs> so I, I'll just give a couple of examples. Um, number one, seventh century Arabia, when Prophet Muhammad began his mission, was a stateless area. So there's no state. There are no governments. There's no UN. So peace is not the default. A state of war is the default. Mm -hmm. Tribes would be fighting with each other all the time. Raiding was a regular part of life. War was almost an everyday occurrence. And two scholars, uh, Michael Bonner and Fred Donner, who are scholars of early Islam, they make this very explicit point. Mm -hmm. So uh, any community, in Muhammad's community, when they had, uh, they, for 13 years, they were persecuted, they fled, they went to another, s they, they formed a new state, uh, and the de their default relationship with every, their neighbors was a one of war. Mm -hmm. So the Quran says, verse 2240, permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made. The Quran only allows defensive war. It does not allow anyone to start hostilities. Um, the Quran also says, for example, uh, in, in, uh, in many verses, um, that if the other side wants peace, then make peace. Mm -hmm. It actually tells the Muslims, if you have a peace treaty, so peace treaties meant there's peace. Mm -hmm. Today, peace is a default, right? But in 7th century Arabia, there's only peace if there's a treaty. Mm -hmm. So the Quran says in Surah 9, for example, um, those who you have treaties with, you are not to attack. You're not to engage in, in hostilities with them. And it, another verse in Surah 9, Surah 9, 6 says, if any of the, the polytheists seeks your, seeks your protection, give it to him. Mm -hmm. Protect mm -hmm. him. So there's no justification nowhere in the Quran is, uh, is are Muslims allowed or even commanded to commit acts of violence against people they are at peace with. The Quran says, interestingly, it says there's no compulsion in religion. Uh, and I'll read this one verse, and it really emphasizes the attitude. So and I, I'm trying, I'm making this point because we have certain people going on media, on Fox News, on uh, CBN News, called experts of Islam. <laughs> and when I Google their names, I find out they're really um, Christian apologists. Yep. They're evangelical Christians calling themselves experts on Islam. Yep. And they're, they're, they're saying, you know, the, the Quran is, is encouraging violence, and it's completely false. But what does the Quran actually say about Jews and Christians? So here's what it says. I, this is a very important verse. And, and this is not about whether one believes in the Quran or not. I mean, I'm looking at this academically, right. and for me as an academic, the Quran is the earliest source of Muslim history. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who wrote the Quran. This is a documentary source. So the Quran says in chapter 2, verse 62. Verily, those who have faith, and those who are Jews, and those who are Christians, and those who are Sabians, and whoever has faith in God and the Day of Judgment and works righteousness, surely their reward is with their Lord, and there shall come upon them no fear, nor shall they grieve. This is the Quran mm -hmm. saying, hey, you want to be, you want salvation? You really just need to have faith in God and do good. 
Mm. It's not about whether you're Muslim or Christian yeah. or Jewish. That's the Quranic attitude toward humankind. The Quran says, chapter 4, verse 1, that God has created all humans from one soul. Neoplatonically, mm. that's the yeah. universal soul. Mm -hmm. So all people are going, I've come from one origin, human beings are linked. And I think what we really need against this Islamophobia is the idea, what um, the Aga Khan and others call a cosmopolitan ethic. An ethic that is not marginalizing any people and that upholds quality of life regardless of one's faith. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for those, uh, those examples. Um, uh, I, I kind of wish we lived in a world where we didn't have to ask questions like that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I saw an interesting video. Uh, I think it was a Danish uh, video. There's a guy, because it was subtitled, and he was going around saying, hey, listen, I'm going to read you this, these quotes out of the Quran. Uh, tell me what you think. And he's reading this like awful, violent stuff, and, at the, and people are saying, yeah, no, that's terrible, that's terrible. And he goes, actually, that's the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it comes, it's a product of the time when it was written, and, uh, you know, you're going to find that stuff everywhere. And as you mentioned, religions are made of people. It's, uh, and, and some people are dicks, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just uh, mention one thing at the end. Uh, the, prob the reason why we have these conversations, why these questions are being asked, and why politicians are allowed to make these statements, and the public buys it, is that we today are not uh, religiously literate. Oh, yeah. So there's absolutely. a lack of religious oh, yeah. literacy. And I wanted to just share that Harvard University, where I'm at, has put on, Harvard Divinity School, uh, has put on a series of courses about the scriptures of every major religion. That's right, yeah. For free. Mm -hmm. Anybody oh, can wow. take it. I saw that, yeah. Right? And you can learn how to, you know, the, hopeful, the hope is that people will, will do these courses and they will learn some religious literacy. I'm making a note here. I'm going to uh, see if I can find that link and throw that in the show notes here. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, we're, we're over time, so uh, thank you once again well, for joining you. us. It's been a fascinating conversation. I know I've learned a lot, and, and uh, I hope, Jonathan, yeah. uh, got, you got thank all your you. questions in uh, that yeah. you were looking for. But um, we'd love to have you back and uh, maybe dig into some of these concepts in a little more detail. Okay. Uh, and since you're uh, right down the street in Cambridge, uh, uh, we... That sounds like it'd be pretty easy. Anyway, so uh, we'll put your links in the description of the video again to academia.edu and all that. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. All right. You. And for those of you who are listening along at home, we will see you next week. Good night, everybody. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.